All right, so friends, uh, our last session, uh, we're going to talk about what is uh, or the Holy Spirit's role in sanctification. And hopefully throughout this whole retreat, you've kind of not only seen the Holy Spirit and gotten to know Him more and how He's been revealed in the Bible, but also seen the redemptive historical theme uh, uh, and how the Holy Spirit's played a role in that. So in creation, the Holy Spirit was involved in that He gave dead, inanimate objects. So we, see, we saw the Father and the Son created the, the world that was without form, that was void, Genesis 1.1. But then we see the Holy Spirit hovering over creation and giving it life, cherishing it unto existence, separating the light from the darkness, uh, separating the, the waters of uh, the seas from the land. Uh, we saw that in Job. We saw that in Psalm. Uh, and, and, and those passages gave us understanding of the Holy Spirit's work in, in, in creation. He's the separator, the organizer, the one who breathes life into things. Um, we saw the Holy Spirit's role in Pentecost in that He is gracious uh, to, to, to reveal who God is and what the gospel is and, and this, this plan of salvation and that although we're created in God's image for God's glory, we've rebelled, and if left to our own free will, we would all disobey God and run away from God. But the Holy Spirit was gracious enough to not only give Himself and guide uh, the God's people in the Old Testament, uh, uh, but also uh, in Pentecost, um, release or or expand or make more um, uh, make deeper these truths into our hearts, uh, but also across the world, not just limited to biological Israel. Now that we are all God's people because of of the Spirit's work in our hearts in revealing Christ and His death on the cross that we may be reconciled to the Father. And in our, in our regeneration, which connects to that, as Gray uh, uh, told us uh, or, or, or revealed to us yesterday what the Scriptures say, um, uh, you, uh, uh, Genesis, I mean, uh, John chapter 3, Nicodemus, uh, Nicodemus, not Nicodemus, I'm sorry. Um, who was it? Wow, I'm blanking. Is it Nicodemus? It is Nicodemus. Um, last day. Uh, political ruler religious authority, right, a Pharisee, saying, you need to be born again. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good your church is. I don't care how rich you are. I don't care how much political power you have. You need to be born again if you want to be God's child with God. But then, um, uh, which is a reality, of course, that applies to all mankind and all of us. And now, we're going to talk about what life looks like as a Christian after we have been born again after we have been regenerated, after we have been uh, reconciled with the Father by the work of the Holy Spirit that gives life to our dead hearts, as He did in Genesis 1, gives life to dead things. Um, now, what does our life look like? All right, so what the Holy, the Holy Spirit's role in sanctification. So, um, hopefully this will be a summary of, of all that we've talked about, and probably one of the more applicable topics uh, because of its topics. Let me just first define what sanctification is. It sounds like a fancy term, but here's the working definition. Sanctification, to be sanctified simply, is to be set apart for the glory of the triune God. To be sanctified is to be set apart for the glory of the triune God. We'll, we'll get to that in a bit. Okay, be set apart for the glory of the triune God. Now, before we start, I want to distinguish, but not totally separate, sanctification into two general parts, okay? First, I want to talk about sanctification as an eternal legal status. 
our us being set apart as in our eternal legal status before God. And second, I want to talk about sanctification as our current disposition. A disposition is our uh, uh, current realities, our current attitudes, our current heart dispositions, our current um, um, a being, right? So, um, um, one is our legal, eternal legal status, and, and the other one is our current disposition. Let's talk about it. Hopefully, we'll get a better understanding about, about the two. First, sanctification or being set apart as an eternal legal status. So, uh, the first one is kind of, I, w- I want to talk about here about us being objectively sanctified, objectively set apart because of what Christ has done, okay, um, apart from our works. The reality is found in what God has declared to be true. You are innocent, you are forgiven. You are a child of God. It's a declaration about who you are because of what Christ has done for you and because of what the Holy Spirit has done in your heart. It's done, done one and for all, okay? Um, the timing is immediate. It, it, when, when it happened, it happened. You're, you're done. You're, you're righteous. You're declared perfect in Christ. And our part is to be the recipient of that gracious declaration of what God has done. Okay, let's look at some verses. 1 Corinthians 1-2, the church of God that is in Corinth, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, okay, set apart in Christ Jesus, sanctified, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, okay? Uh, you're called to be saint, saints, you're set apart, you're sanctified, Hebrews 10, 10-14, and by that... Uh, and, by, and by that will, we have been sanctified, set apart, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. When? Once and for all. It's done. We've been sanctified, set apart through Christ and what He's done on the cross for us once and for all. And every priest, talking about the Old Testament uh, temple laws, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly same sacrifices, which can never take away sin, talking about the bulls and the, and the Old Testament sacrifices. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet by a single offering. By a single offering, he has what? Perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One time for all, perfected, done, it is finished, you are forgiven, you are spotless, you are clean, you are righteous, you are a child of God. Colossians 2, 13 to 14. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. What does all mean? Just past? Just past and current? All. Past, current, future. All, it's done. Stop going to church to be more saved. It's done. Rest. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Okay? So the word legal there in verse 14 is what would probably help us think about this. Legally, to be legally declared innocent is an objective status about who you are. You're legally innocent, declared to be innocent, okay? And the term we're going to use is, is uh, coined by John Murray, 
Um, and it, he calls it definitive sanctification. It's definite. It's done. Okay, that's the first type of sanctification being set apart I want to talk about, which is the eternal legal status of who you are. Now, the second part of sanctification, the second part of being uh, uh, set apart is as our current disposition of our current mind and heart and loves and desires and passions and, and even physical bodies. This is more subjective. There's more of a subjective feel to it. Not that the subjectivity here makes the objective reality less true. No, no, no. But there's more. Um, um, it's more about how we are shaped to become more of who we objectively already are. Okay, Hebrews 10.14 earlier. Let's go back to Hebrews, Hebrews 10.14. Um, so, it says, by single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. You see a bit of a so you're, you're perfect, but yet you're still being sanctified. You see, there's a bit of a tension there, a paradox there. And in one sense, you're already legally set apart. You're already legally declared to be righteous. But in another sense, you are still being. Being is not a, being is a, is a continual process, right? You're being sanctified, okay? So one is your objective legal status. The other one is kind of your current disposition. So the reality here is found in the disposition of our person. The timing here is not immediate. It's progressive, and our part is to trust and obey, okay? Romans 12, 1 to 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. When Paul talks to brothers, he's talking about those who have been definitively sanctified. He's talking about Christians, uh, uh, and girls and guys can be brothers. Girls and guys can be sons, not because of sexism, but because even back then, sons and the male, uh, the male sons, the eldest son is the one who gets the heritage, is the one who gets the inheritance. And Christianity is saying both men and female get the inheritance. It actually offended sexist people back then. Same, yeah, no, everybody gets the inheritance of God. So brothers, male, female, Christians, by the mercies of God, um, I appeal to their brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So I'm already a brother. I'm already a part of the inherit, one who will inherit uh, uh, um, um, the, the, the benefit of Christ on the cross and what He's done for me. But I'm still called to present my bodies as a living sacrifice. Here's the problem with the living sacrifice. They wiggle a lot. <laughs> right? They don't want to be sacrificed. It's saying, yeah, I know. I know you're wiggling. But present yourself as that, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. There's commands there of things to do. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, progressive, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So in one sense, you are brothers, you are perfect in Christ, but in another sense, there's these commands of you to not be conformed to the world, to be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and this progressive sense as well. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Since we have this, these, promise, these promises, we have a promise, beloved, you're beloved, but yet he says, you're beloved, there's a promise for you, but yet he says, clean yourselves. I thought I was clean. You are clean legally. You are clean objectively, but you are still called to trust and obey as you progressively become who you have been declared objectively to be. First Thessalonians 4, 3-5, for this is the will of God. You know, it's funny, people ask me, you know, what is the will of God for my life? And they're looking for, like, you know, what job to get and who to marry. And I say, the will of God is for you to be sanctified. <laughs> That's the will of God. That's what He wants. 
What is the will of God for my life? It's for you to be sanctified, for you to become more of who you have been declared to be objectively, okay? For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passions of lust like Gentiles who do not know God. So he's saying, you're not, a, you're not a Gentile who doesn't know God. You know God. You've been declared definitively to be objectively righteous on all that. You know God. But yet, don't live as if you don't. Progressively. Okay. And the term to use there, uh, by, again, coined by John Murray, is not definitive sanctification. It's progressive sanctification. Okay. Do you see the pattern there in the Bible, how, how both are true? There's a definitive, there's a progressive. And this is what today's session is going to be all about, progressive sanctification. What is the Holy Spirit's role in our progressive uh, uh, sanctification? Let me just note, um, before I move on, we can't separate these things too firmly. There is a relationship between the two. This is kind of two sides of the same coin, um, Matthew 7, 16 to 17. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Christians, you recognize those who are born again, who are definitely sanctified by their fruits. Our grapes gather from thorn bushes and figs from thistles, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. If you are definitively sanctified, there will be change in your life. There will be progressive movement towards who you have been declared to be true. If there isn't, if you could care less about the things of God, if you don't begin to hate what He hates more, if you don't begin to love what He loves more, if there's no uh, deeper conviction about your life and your sin, you have to ask, am I truly born again? Yes, you've gone to church. Yes, you've done all these spiritual things. Yes, you know all the Sunday school answers. But do you begin to, do you love what God loves? Do you hate what God hates? And is that progressively growing in your life? There is a connection. Herman Bovink uh, says this, those who are born of God, by the way, these people that were, quote, like, they're good. Uh, so just look them up if you don't know who they are. We don't have time to, to really explain who they are, but these are profound people with profound biblical insights. So Herman Bovink, John Owen, Kuiper, all those guys. Just, just look them up. I encourage you. Herman Bovink, those who are born of God increasingly become the children of God. You see that? Those who are born of God, they're, born, they're reborn, increasingly become the children of God and bear His image and likeness because in principle, they are already His children. You see the same paradox he's trying to communicate there? The rule of organic life applies to them. Become what you are. This is who you are. Become that. <laughs> Be that. Do that. Move towards that. Okay, but for the sake of our discussion today, we are going to make that distinction, although we don't want to break it too much, but we are going to make that distinction uh, and localize our attention to hit the Holy Spirit role in our progressive sanctification, not in our definitive sanctification, all right? So, how does a Christian grow in progressive sanctification? I... I, I wanted to use consequent or progressive there, but just I'm just going to use progressive because consequent might be confusing. How does a Christian grow in progressive sanctification? Now, I can kind of get it complicated, so I think what will be helpful is this. I'm going to set up the structure in the beginning. I think there's a slide, I hope, that, that has, I don't know if we have that, that structure in place. Um, is there, what's the next slide, this? Is there, is there one? No. There it is. Yes. Okay. Did Emily take the, uh, the laser pointer? Oh, I get to use laser pointer. All right. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> so I think, okay, we need to really, so it's going to be hard to, um, uh, to, to, to follow where I'm going unless we kind of have a, a structure um, for, for the talks, and I think this could be a good one. Thank you. All right. And, yeah, okay. So, 
Okay, so here's 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 how we're gonna break it. Okay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to this uh, these slides a lot. This, so I'll, I'll thank you. Okay, so two broad categories: the Holy Spirit's role, and then the second category is the next slide. Uh, next slide. Our responsibility. Okay, two broad categories: Holy Spirit's role, our uh, responsibility. Now go back a bit two slides. Okay, the Holy Spirit's role. I'm going to break that down to two parts. One is his eternal work, eh, external work, <laughs> his external work, and then the second one is internal work. Okay, let's just camp here. So, Holy Spirit's role, our responsibility. Holy Spirit's role, there's two, external, internal. Okay, go back. In the external, there's two more, the means of grace and the institution of the church. Okay, and then under the means of grace, there's two more, the Word of God and sacraments. And the sacraments here, I'm just going to talk mainly about the Lord's Supper, not baptism, because it gets a bit too much to cover. So I'm just talking about the, the, the Lord's Supper here, okay? Now, uh, under the internal work, just one subtop, subtopic, the working of faith in our hearts. You get the structure kind of? Okay, now for, the, for the, our responsibility, a few things there. Uh, partaking in the means of grace, which is uh, uh, listening to the studying and hearing good preaching of the Word of God, uh, partaking in the sacraments, right? That, that correlates with, with earlier, with external work, and also becoming an active member in a local church and trusting and obeying the Holy Spirit that is within us, okay? So keep that framework in your mind. Right now, don't worry about the our responsibility part. The Most of today is going to be about the Holy Spirit's role, okay? So the, let's talk about the Holy Spirit's role right now. Um, and so his role in our progressive sanctification is applying the truths of the covenant of grace, the gospel, right, the cross, simply put, deeper into our hearts. That, that, he, he applies these truths deeper into our heart. How does he do that? External work, we're going to talk about the means of grace first right now. Okay, does that make sense where we are in the discussion? Okay. First, the means of grace. What is the means of grace? The means of grace are ordinary things that God has set apart to progressively sanctify His people. These ordinary things are not special by virtue of their own innate qualities, but because the Holy Spirit has set them apart. Okay, and under this category, as I've said, I want to. So let me repeat that again. I don't know if that's on the uh, on the slide or not. Um, but the means of grace, I think it is. Uh, on just uh, in, in the three go three slides ahead. There it is. Means of grace are ordinary things that God has set apart to progress and sanctify people. These ordinary things are not special by virtue of their own inequalities, but because the Holy Spirit has set them apart. And I can email this PowerPoint to you guys, so don't worry too much about it. Just kind of get the concepts right now. Okay. Under this category, I want to talk about two things, the Word of God and the sacraments, uh, specifically the Lord's Supper. The Word of God. Let me just read a few verses. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of Scripture, the Bible, is breathed out by God and is profitable for progressively sanctifying God's people, right? That's what it's talking about. Okay. So the question is, how can the words of ordinary people like the apostles and the prophets be called God's Word? And how can it be used by God to progressively sanctify His people? Because these are ordinary people, right, who, 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 who wrote these words down, who spoke of these words, except for the words of Christ, obviously. 
But how can ordinary people be used to make something that is God-breathed for progressive sanctification? That's the first question we're going to ask for the, for the Word of God. The second is a sacrament, the Lord's Supper. Here's what we're going to talk about. I'm just giving you a broad outline right now, and we're going to get deeper into the Word of God in a bit. But the Word of God, that's the main question. The sacrament, Matthew 26, 26 to 28. Now, as they're eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, uh, after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The question is, how can an ordinary thing like bread and wine, right? I eat bread and drink wine all the time, appropriately. How can ordinary things that I use for everyday use be called by Jesus my body? And my blood. And it's pretty emphatic there. This is my body. This is my blood. How can he say that with bread and, and wine? And how, how can he use this to progressively sanctify his people? Okay, ordinary things that's been set apart for higher use. Okay, let's get into, um, uh, into that briefly. The, uh, uh, how does God set apart ordinary things for holy use? Okay, if you're in my session, in session one, in creation we saw that throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, when He comes upon something, He sets that thing, that ordinary thing, apart for holy use. One example is Moses' right hand or the, the wooden staff, okay? Isaiah 63, 11 to 12. This is pretty cool. Then He remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is He who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of His flock? Where is he who put them in the midst of uh, in the in the midst of them his holy spirit who caused the holy spirit caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name why did Moses's normal wooden staff become this magical thing that can divide a sea was it because the wood was special did they find the did like was in a you know cave somewhere, and, and they found this archaic wood that had magical powers in itself? No. The wood was just ordinary wood. What happened, it says here? The Holy Spirit, what? Came upon it. Set apart an ordinary thing for holy use. The temple that became God's uh, residing place. Only the high priest can enter the temple. Why? Nothing magical about the physical material of the tent. The tent was just a tent. But who was living in the tent? The Holy Spirit. So, it became holy, set apart, Okay, to be taken with reverence. The Ark of the Covenant, the gold that was used to make the Ark of the Covenant was just normal gold. Why was it then when somebody touches it, they die? As it represents God's holiness and He can't be with sin. Because the Holy Spirit hovered upon it. Mary's womb, New Testament. Why was the flesh and the blood that was shaped within Mary's womb the incarnate Son of God and not just another human baby? Now, there's nothing special within the biological makeup of Mary's womb in itself, but the Holy Spirit came upon her, Luke 1, 34, 35. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, uh, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The only reason why Mary's womb will um, uh, contain a God incarnate in flesh is, is because the Holy Spirit hovered upon it. And Michael Horton make a good, a good connection between the Holy Spirit 
this is kind of graphic, but I, I kind of think it's neat, hovering over the waters, of the, the dead waters, the deep, right, of the, of the Old Testament, Genesis 1, and all of a sudden marine life came out of it, brought life, so did he hover over Mary's waters and brought upon it life and, and, and sanctified that uh, which is ordinary. Okay, in the same way, human speech that is found in the Bible and the bread and wine used for the Lord's Supper are ordinary things. But the Holy Spirit has set them apart for what? To further sanctify His people. First, okay, so now let's go back to the, to the slide that, okay, so now we're going to talk about, so we know what the means of grace is, ordinary things that the Holy Spirit has set apart for holy use. Now we're going to get to the Word of God, okay? This is where we are. Okay, first, the Word of God. Who wrote the Word of God? Prophets of the Old Testament and apostles of the New Testament. Old Testament, New Testament, prophets, apostles, right? That's the Word of God. Innately, in within themselves, they're ordinary people. They're sinners even. But yet their words is called God's Word, Ephesians 2.20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Talking about the church, right? Built on the foundation of the what? The Bible. The apostles, Old Testament. Sorry, the prophets, Old Testament, and the apostles, New Testament. You're built on the foundation of the prophets, Old Testament, and the apostles, New Testament, which is the Bible, and it's a foundation. A foundation isn't repetitively put down. The Bible is final. That is the foundation in which the church is built upon, okay? So the prophets and the apostles somehow are, are, are set apart for this holy use, but why them? By virtue of their innate qualities? No, Moses, whose words God used to write the Torah, sold out, um, or uh, Moses was a murderer, um, and disobeyed God at his old age and was rebuked by God when he had doubt uh, uh, during the travel to the promised land. David, who wrote most of the Psalms, was an adulterer and a murderer. Solomon, who wrote the Proverbs and, and, and the wisdom uh, literature, um, uh, I mean, Solomon, right? Uh, Isaiah confessed of having unclean lips in Isaiah chapter 6. Jonah, presumably, presumably the one who wrote Jonah, um, uh, was a rebellious prophet. There's nothing. These people aren't in within themselves special or righteous in within their innate uh, humanity. The apostles were no better. So the, that's a prophecy of the Old Testament. The apostle of the New Testament was no better. Whose words compiled the New Testament? Matthew was a tax collector who did a lot of... Tax collectors back then are known to be, do a lot of shady things. James, Jesus' earthly brother, the son of Mary and Joseph... Uh, uh, that, in that way, Jesus' brother made fun of Jesus' whole ministry, and not like in a brotherly fun way, but like in a gospel-hating way his whole life. Peter had anger issues and was a coward. Paul massacred Christians. These are the people that God used to write His Word, the Scriptures. How? If they in themselves are sinners just like anyone else, how can their words be set apart for holy use? Well, same as the other instances, because the Holy Spirit like he did with ordinary things in the Old Testament, set these ordinary people apart and decided to use them to record God's holy word for his people. Let me just go to a few verses there. Mark 12, 36. Um, uh, Mark is quoting David, and he said, um, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David said it in the Holy Spirit. David's words was attributed to the Holy Spirit, declared. David and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit through David declared. Hebrews 10, 15 to 16, uh, the author here, the author of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah 31. 
And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, now he's quoting Jeremiah, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws in their hearts and then write them on their minds. But uh, the author of Hebrew is uh, associating the words of Jeremiah to who? The Holy Spirit bears witness. Holy Spirit, okay? Second Peter 1.21, for no prophecy, right? Prophets of the Old, Old Testament, remember? No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, 12, 13, last one. Now we, talking about the apostles there, we received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You see, all of Scripture is associated to the work of the spirit who has set these people apart for holy use. And even, and, and, and even like just in the tent, the, the, the tent itself didn't, material didn't like change to become something else, and the gold didn't change to become something else. When the prophets and the apostles wrote the Word of God, it's not like their minds changed to something else, and they kind of became like, in like, just they didn't know what they were writing. If you look at um, uh, Luke 1, he said, um, uh, as he's writing, it seemed good to me to write these things to you. So he was, he was aware when he was doing it. He didn't get lost in this frenzy and just started writing stuff and then woke up a year later and was like, oh, I wrote a book. Like, that's not what happened. He said, it seems good for me to write this to you. The Holy Spirit didn't change the innate, but somehow made it special for holy use, okay? So, um, okay, so, hold on. <laughs> Okay, so back to our original, original topic on that slide. We have to go to that slide. Okay, the question is, what is the Holy Spirit's role in our progressive sanctification? This is talking about external, His external work, right? In our progressive sanctification is by giving us, is by setting apart the prophets and the apostles and giving us the Word of God, which is the foundation in which the church is built upon, which is breathed out by God, 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Uh, uh, he set apart apostles prophets to write the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Progressive sanctification. Okay? How did God give us the Bible to do that? Through the Holy Spirit who set these ordinary men apart for holy use. So you want to be a spiritual person? You want to grow in your progressive sanctification? As good as Sovereign Grace's worship music is or whoever your favorite Christian band is, as, as good as those things are, and you should sing more to the Lord and worshiping good doctrinal lyrics put into song, is, it's good for your growth. As good as a Tim Keller and a John Piper book is, and you should read more of those, and that's good for our growth. Yet we see in the Bible that the Holy Spirit did not set apart Sovereign Grace musicians, nor Tim Keller, nor John Piper, nor any other human being in the way that he set apart the apostles and the prophets. These people he set apart specifically whom he used to write the Bible through, which is, which is God-breathed for the foundation of the church. That's, okay, this, this topic is going to be very anticlimactic because you think about the Holy Spirit's role in sanctification, and you're like, oh, how do I kind of get to the wow, right? That's kind of that's our, our thinking. And it's, if that's your expectation, you're really going to be bummed out because <laughs> it's actually really ordinary. 
and really common things. The Word of God. Expose yourself to it. It's spiritual in the truest sense. Okay. Let me get into the bread and the wine, and then I'll open it up for questions, okay? So the second thing, the bread and the wine in the... Oh, my gosh, it's 1045. Okay. The, uh, the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper. Okay. If God used people who in within themselves are ordinary to write His holy word for the purposes of sanctifying His people, God also uses the bread and the wine during the sacraments, which within themselves are ordinary, eat bread and drink wine all the time, to be the flesh and blood of Christ. Now, okay, how do we know how the Holy Spirit is working here? By, by talking about the two perspectives or the three perspectives about communion. Okay, now, what does it mean that the bread actually becomes the flesh of Christ, or is the flesh of Christ, and the wine is the blood of Christ. The first temptation is for us to think that it actually physically, its, it's innate physical characteristics were changed to becoming actual flesh, the flesh of Christ, and actual blood, the blood of Christ, okay, which is the view that the Roman Catholics hold and Martin Luther held, who was a reformer. Okay? They, they would say that that's called transubstantiation. The, the, the bread actually became flesh of Christ, and the blood actually became the blood of Christ, like with blood cells, you would say, I guess, physically, right? Second temptation is to say we, the, uh, we hold on to John Calvin's view, which is different than these two, but the first one is actual change. The second one is that it's just memorabilia. It's just, it's just to help us remember of the, the flesh of Christ that was torn for us on the cross and the blood of Christ, Christ that was poured for us. That's, that's uh, Ulrich Zwingli, another reformer. That's his view. It's memorabilia. And, and um, so it doesn't actually turn into the flesh and the blood, but it's just kind of to, to help us remember. And we'll see how in both of these views, actually, they undermine the role of the Holy Spirit during the sacraments. Okay, and, and when we talk about John Calvin's view, uh, uh, which is also the view stated in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we'll see how this view doesn't undermine the Holy Spirit's role in this process. Okay, let's get to it. First, the, the view held by the Roman Catholics and Martin Luther, tran, transubstantiation, okay? That the bread actually becomes the flesh of Christ and the wine actually becomes the blood of Christ. Like, like, like actually, the innate qualities of, of the object changes. Now, the Reformed Church, or, or Calvin, rejects this view. Why? Uh, because where is the actual, let me ask you this, this is a trippy question. A professor asked me this in seminary once, uh, Derek Thomas, and he said, where is the body of Christ now? Where is it now? And people are like, outer space, you know, somewhere in the, in the heavens and the sky. It's like, oh, you go, to you go to outer space, you won't see him floating around, right? Where is he? He's, he's with God at the right hand of the Father, uh, in, a, in a dimension that our physical eyes might not be able to see right now. <laughs> uh, that's, that's trippy, right? It is trippy. Um, but he's saying that the, but, but the, the, blood, the physical resurrected body of Christ, um, he is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his ascension at the right hand in the heavenly places. Colossians 1, 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where the resurrected body of Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, it's important to note that the physical resurrected body of Jesus, okay, so, so the one that ate fish with Peter, the one that doubting Thomas put his finger through, Remember that story? The one who still has scars of the cross described as the lamb that was slain. The flesh and blood of Jesus Christ is not omnipresent. 
It cannot be at multiple places at the same time. So we can't say that the bread and the wine literally became the flesh and the blood of Christ because the flesh and the blood of the resurrected Christ is localized at the right hand of the Father. And it can be omnipresent. I might think, okay, well, that whole thing is magical, right? Him being so why can't this be magical too? Like why can't why can't the bread just turn into flesh and the wine turn into blood? Because Jesus himself admits that his physical body cannot be omnipresent. John 16, 7 to 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's better for you, world, my people, that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world. He will convict the world, okay, there's a lot of ground to cover there, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, and, and concerning sin and judgment and all that, and all that. It goes on in 9 and 10 and 11. What I want to point out is that it's actually better for you that I leave. Why? Because my physical body, I cannot, I cannot do that, you see? But the Holy Spirit can. He's not limited by the human frame that I adopted so that I can die for you. It's be- I'm not, I'm not omni- the physical body of Christ is not that the Holy Spirit that can be everywhere at every time. So the physical resurrected body of Jesus Christ, who is now in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, is not omnipresent and can't do what the Holy Spirit does, cannot be at different places at the same time. How can the bread and wine literally become the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ at multiple places at the same time, often on Sunday mornings, and therefore at multiple places at the same time? Okay. That's why we reject that it's not actually the flesh and the blood of Christ. Second view by Zwingli. It's just memorabilia. It's just, it's just, a, it's just remembering what Christ, uh, the blood and wine of Christ. Okay. He would say it's just a sign and nothing more. But then this seems to be a cop-out, and it doesn't put justice to Jesus' words. This is my body, not just a sign. This is my flesh. I mean, this is my blood. Okay, Matthew 26 uh, to 28. Uh, I think I read it. Let me just read it again. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread after, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. First Corinthians 10, 16, make this point, I think, even more emphatic. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a part is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? That's confusing. We said that the physical body of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ, cannot be omnipresent everywhere, but at the same time, Jesus is saying, this is my body and this is my blood. Without, how can he do that without breaking the limitations of his physical body that is localized right now at the right hand of the Father? Well... This is where the Holy Spirit comes in. He sets the bread and the wine apart for holy use, turns it into something more than ordinary bread and wine. Okay? It's not just memory of flesh. but It's set, set apart. It's something more than just bread and wine, but neither does it literally become flesh and blood of Christ that is now localized in heaven. Okay. Stick with me, okay? We're, gonna, we're coming to a close, and then we, have, we can have questions here. How does he do that? How does the Holy Spirit make the bread and the wine something more and different than what it is without changing the innate qualities of that thing? 
when I just said that sentence, does your memory jog to something? How does the Holy Spirit set apart something and actually make the physical thing different without changing the innate qualities of that thing? That's what He's been doing throughout the whole Bible, right? The tent, the physical tent in itself, the area surrounding it became different than just a tent. It is the holy dwelling place of God. It's not just a tent, but it's a tent, right? Its physical quality, its innate qualities of the tent didn't change. If wind blew it, it would still wave because it's a tent. The gold of the ark, right? The, the physical area of the ark is what's holy. You can, like, walk around it. You can take pictures of it, right? You can't touch it because what was set apart is the actual physical ark, it's still gold, though. Like, the innate goldness didn't change, but yet it's not just gold, you see? It is the presence of God's holy glory upon it. He made it something more than it, what it was, really more than what it was. It wasn't, the tent isn't just an a, a imagery of God's holy dwelling. It is God's holy dwelling. The Ark of the Covenant isn't just a picture of God's glory. It is where God's glory resides. The bread and the wine... Is not just a picture of the flesh and blood of Christ, but yet the innate qualities of bread and wine was not changed. You see, still bread and wine, but it's more than bread and wine. It is the flesh and the blood of Christ. There's mystery there. There is, and we can't truly comprehend it, but that's how the Holy Spirit works with Mary's womb as well and Moses' staff as well. The wood didn't change the innate quality. Okay, so like the Ark of the Covenant, like the tent of worship, like Moses' staff, like Mary's womb, the Holy Spirit changes the actual um, uh, uh, physical space of those things and material of those things uh, to be holy and revered and different than if the Holy Spirit didn't come upon it without changing the innate qualities of the material aspects of those things. What happens in communion is the Holy Spirit comes upon the elements of a communion, the bread and the wine. He sets them apart makes them holy, revered, different than just bread and wine. It's not just bread and wine, but yet these innate materials does not actually turn into the actual flesh and blood of Christ. The physical bread is still bread, but at the same time, it is holy and revered, not just a memory of the flesh of Christ. The physical wine is still wine, but at the same time, it is holy and revered in a spiritual sense, the blood of Christ, not just a memory of the blood of Christ. Question 170 of Westminster Confession of Faith. How do they that worthily communicate in the Lord's Supper feed upon the body and the blood of Christ therein? As the body and blood of Christ are not corporally and carnally present in, carnally means like actually turns to flesh, like carnal. It doesn't actually carnally present in, with, or under the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. The physical body, the actual physical body is, is localized in heaven. And yet, are spiritually present to the faith of the receiver, no less truly and really than the elements themselves are their outward senses. So, they, so it's not just a memory, but, um, uh, but it does somehow become spiritually the flesh and the blood of Christ, so that they that worthily communicate in the sacraments of the Lord's Supper do therein feed upon the body and blood of Christ, not after a corporal and carnal. He keeps reminding us to kind of balance between the two, Okay but in a spiritual manner, yet truly and really, not just a memory. <laughs> While by faith they receive and apply unto themselves Christ crucified and all the benefits of His death. Okay. So, 
How do you grow in your progressive sanctification? Take the Word of God, dig deep into it. It's a spiritual thing that's been set apart more than anything else in the Bible. Participate in the Lord's Supper during worship when your elder blesses upon it and all that kind of stuff. This is a specific thing that the Holy Spirit has revealed to be set apart and not, nothing else. Not, not, like, not, not like a you know, Tim Keller, John Piper book, as good as they are. Again, the feels that we get from singing worship songs, great. Great. Those, those, those minister to you and sanctify you. The aha moments when you read a Keller book as it relates culture and Christianity so well. The, the passion that you feel when you read a Piper book, right? Those things help. But in a special way, the Bible says the Holy Spirit has especially and specifically set apart particularly the words of the apostles and the prophets, the Bible, that is foundation of the church, and the bread and the wine in communion for the progressive sanctification of His people. I told you, it's so boring, <laughs> right? Go to church, get deep into the Word, take communion. That's, that's it. <laughs> that's, the, that's how you grow progressively. Okay. Um, you want to mature in your progressive sanctification, then muster up everything you have. Muster up Okay, when I say simple and not like, wow, I don't mean the, the passion you have for this should be wow. You should put everything you have. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Put everything you have to being a member at a good church that consistently preaches the Word of God, not wisdom from men, but the Word of God that has been set apart for you, as well as a church that consistently and properly administers the Lord's Supper. That's the will of God for your life. That's how you grow, to becoming who you are in Christ. All right. Let's pause for some questions, and then we're going to take a 10-minute break, and then we'll continue with the rest. All right. Any questions? Yes. Uh, I have a question about the nature of the sacraments. Mm-hmm. So if the Holy Spirit made it uh, sacred or holy, uh, set apart, is there something supernatural or different from uh, in, in the sub- substance in the way that if non-believers eat it or if we eat it but not with faith, then it's just going to be different? Yeah, and we'll get to that too when we talk about the Holy Spirit's internal. So this is the external work that He does, right? Making the Bible, creating the Bible, and and sanctifying the the bread and the wine. These are the external things. But we're going to talk about that. He also needs to work internally of us. Um, that as we partake in those things, we so it's, it's not like it, you just take it and it happens, right? Um, you have to have internal faith when you take Him, and that's also the Holy. Spirit. Holy Spirit's work. And you see in the Bible, um, that's why we always say at CCC, sh- this is what people call fencing the table. Fencing the table is when you say, if you're a Christian today, please partake of it. But if you're not, a, if you haven't received Christ as the Lord and Savior, if you're still exploring the gospel, you're still trying to figure that out, don't, don't partake of the, of the elements. Don't do it uh, because it will be a curse upon you, uh, as Scripture says. And I'll read, I'll read out the passage for that later. So there is, yeah, there, the whole, people who, are, who do not have the internal faith in Christ should not participate in, in, the commun- in communion. Um, and I'll, I'll share more about that later in the passage as well. Yeah. I know this wasn't the point, so I, I, I 
don't want you to think I missed the point, but I do have a question about the definitive sanctification. Uh -huh. So I feel like I had always heard justification was that declared not guilty and then sanctification was the progressive. So is this definitive sanctification a third thing or is it another word for... So I think we're going into uh, phrases, which is good. I think it's good for us to have a term terminology for it. I think the word sanctified in itself just means being set apart. So sanct sanctification is usually, yeah, so the use is usually justification and sanctification. You're saved and then you grow as a Christian. That's your sanctification. But properly speaking, I think sanctification is this whole process of being set apart. You're being sanctified. You're being set apart. Just like the bread and the wine are being sanctified, right? It's being set apart. But within sanctification, there is, uh, there is a definitive sanctification, which is justification, that's definitive sanctification. And there's progressive sanctification, which is what we today usually just associate the word sanctification with. Yeah, so, so there's two, really. But sanctification is more just the general term of being set apart. Yeah. Um, does, that, does that help? Okay. Yeah, today usually we say justification and sanctification. Yeah. Good question. Anyone else? All right, we'll take a break. Let's do a five to ten minute break, and then we'll continue the rest of the session. All right, guys, let's start. Let's start again and knock it out. Hopefully, it can be done by 12, 12, 15, the latest. All right, would you guys mind gathering your friends back? into this ordinary room that has not been set apart in that way by the Holy Spirit. But if I keep talking, I think people will start trickling in. So I'm just going to continue throwing my voice out there. I'm so, it's, yeah, exactly. Now it's just, yeah, trivial, trivial. All right, guys, let's start again. Okay, so we are in our second part of this slide that Nisa's already on. Thank you so much. This is it. This is it. You got it. Unbelievable. Everybody, round of applause. <laughs> okay, so we talked about the Holy Spirit's work in our progressive sanctification through the external work of the means of grace, the Word of God and sacrament, how we set apart these holy things. There's another aspect in which the Holy Spirit progressively sanctifies us, and it talks about the institution of the church. Okay, everybody good with where we are in our discussion? Second part of the external work, institution of the church. Okay, uh, let me read Ephesians 4, 4 to 8, 11 to 13. Okay, um, uh, it kinda, you kind of have to split hairs a little bit here, so, so uh, uh, pay, pay attention to it, and, and hopefully it will make sense to us. There is one body, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Is that the wrong verse? 
Is that the wrong passage? That's the right passage, right? I thought you were reminding me of that. Never mind. This is, there is the one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, when you think of what Christ will give you, think about John again, John 16. What is it that Christ promised He will give you? Who, who is it that Christ promised will come when He ascends and leaves you? The Holy Spirit, right? Uh, a measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. Michael Horan used a good imagery here. Uh, he, uh, it's kind of funny. It's like a piñata. Uh, when you hit a piñata and, and kind of like, and it, and it bursts, candies and gifts are given everywhere, right? Christ ascended on high, and the Holy Spirit came, and, and, and He's able to minister to, to in a way that is um, uh, more than just the, the physical resurrected body of Christ can. But then He says the Holy Spirit gave gifts to men, plural, Right? So, the one Holy Spirit gave gifts to men. Now, if you think about the gifts of the Spirit, I know we've said this before in our previous sessions, but just shout out, when you think about gifts of the Spirit, what do you, what do you think of? Shout them out. What gifts? What are the gifts? Prophecy. What? Huh? Oh, tongues. Speaking in tongues. I thought you said tums. Like, okay. Speaking... <laughs> Sometimes they're a huge gift for me. Okay. All right. So, speaking in tongues, prophecy, what else? Wisdom, understanding, right? Yeah, for the teacher to teach. <laughs> Thank you, Jason. Wisdom and understanding. Copycat. All right. Leadership, administration, those kind of things, right? Okay. Let's go to verse 11. What are the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to men? People. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, the church, until we all attain the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness. Progressive sanctification. He gave you people for a progressive sanctification. Now, um, verse 7 and 8 uh, it, grace was given according to Christ's gift. Talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay, now let's go to, um, so what are the gifts of the Spirit we see here? There are people. Who are they? Okay, I'm going to connect these people to the institution of the church. Okay, who are these people? The apostles and the prophets. Remember who they are? Who are the apostles and the prophets? They're the ones who wrote the Holy Scriptures, right? Prophets, Old Testament, apostles, New Testament. The Holy Spirit, uh, uh, the, the, the Holy Scriptures is the what of the church? What's laid once and never again? the foundation of the church, okay? He gave these people for the, for the Word of God in which the church is built upon. The evangelists are those who spread gospel and builds up the church, and I think there's more to it that, that we can talk about, but let's just stick to that for now. The shepherds and the teachers are talking about elders and pastors who what? What do they do? They lead the church, right? But not just that. Pa shepherds and teachers are the ones who lead local churches. So when you look at the book of Acts, um, and you see... Paul, having shared the gospel there uh, and people are coming to Christ, he said, I'm appointing elders and teachers in each church, right? And it says, members, be accountable to your elders. 
Elders, you're accountable for your members. How do you know which elder you're accountable to if there's no system of church membership? Are you accountable to the elders of um, the church next to ours in, in, in our mall or the, the ice palace below us? Are you accountable to the elders there? Are you accountable to who, 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 who are the elders you're accountable to? And how do we know who are the souls that we are accountable for? Am I accountable for the soul of the Christian that's in Bandung? Or, you know, the church next to ours? No. So we have to have a system of membership to where we can obey that command so that we know who we're accountable to and you know who you're accountable to. Okay, the elders. So not only um, does the Holy Spirit give these people for the building up of the church, but also for the institution of the local church. You have shepherds and elders and teachers who are over you and you are, uh, who are serving you and you are growing in them and accountability in them. And it's, so the Holy Spirit here gave us people and he gave us the institution of the church which has elders and shepherds who oversee them. When you think of the Spirit, you don't think of institution, do you? Spirit is like the free-spirited, do-whatever-he-wants kind of thing, and institutions are the boring, you know, institutions. They're just dry and old and traditional, and no one wants institutions. Everybody wants the free-spirited. But here, God is saying, the Spirit gave you an institution, Ugh, right? The Spirit gave you the church and the people who would organize and lead them and serve them thereof. Okay, so in other words, to progressively uh, uh, sanctify uh, God's people, thus, uh, uh, let's go back to the slide there, this, thank you, the Holy Spirit gave us the means of grace, the Word of God, and the sacraments. This is still in the external work, okay, that He has set apart for our progressive sanctification, and He also gave us the institution of the church, and it's all connected. It's all connected, Okay. Let me, show, let me show you how. Um, the means of grace we talked about earlier, the Word of God and the sacraments. Where, where is it done at? Where do you hear faithful exposition of God's Word? In the church. Where do you see the bread and the wine that's been set apart by the Holy Spirit administered in? At the church. So the people that the Holy Spirit set apart to give us a Word that is set apart to progressively sanctify us, and the bread and the wine that are set apart by the Holy Spirit to progressively sanctify us is done in the institution of the church that the Holy Spirit has gifted unto us to then administer these things that have been set apart, and it's all grandly connected, and it all progressively sanctifies us. It's so ordinary. It's so, it's so common. But this is how you grow in progressive sanctification, Okay. Let me just read what I have here. I think, I think it's just repeating what I said, but let me just read it. Okay, we're done. See, the Holy Spirit sets apart the Word of God that progressively sanctifies you and sets apart the bread and the wine that progressively sanctifies you and gave you the institution of the church that progressively sanctifies you in which the Word of God that's been sanctified and the sacraments that's been sanctified are administered and preached, which progressively sanctifies you by the elders and the shepherds in your church that has been gifted by the Holy Spirit for your progressive sanctification. Does that, does that get to it? It's connected. That's how you grow. And friends, this is, okay, we think about this, and, and okay, this is interesting, but this is the will of God for your life. This is the purpose of your creation that you may be sanctified for the glory of God, uh, not only objectively and definitively, but also progressively. Not only is that God's command, this is what you need for joy, for peace, um, 
uh, I know of a parent that um, uh, didn't adopt, but they, um, uh, they kind of took in this child, and it's close to adoption. It's pretty much adoption. Um, but I'm sure there are stories uh, in which the child um, is legally adopted by the parents, and I, I know this couple, um, and the parents that adopted the child, this child had a bad past in which she would not really be fed, and, and she would often have to look for food in trash cans. Um, I think she was adopted when she was two or three, I'm not sure. The parents adopted her, and when the, when the parents adopted her, when the, when the document is signed, she is legally, objectively declared to be their child, right? But yet, a year or two into this new objective reality and identity that she's been given, she was still looking for food from trash cans because she's used to the old habits in life that she has. We Christians have been objectively set apart, and we have been given a new status as a child of God. But do we not often go back to the trash cans of our sin? to look for joy and satisfaction there. And God is saying, you need to be progressively sanctified to believe who you are and your status if you want to stop doing that. This, this is infinitely important, not only for the glory of God, but also for your joy. Okay, questions on this before I move forward. We're going to go to the internal work of uh, the Spirit and then the fruit of the Spirit. This should not take us too long um, because we covered a lot bef- uh, in the first half. Okay. Questions before I move forward with this? Yes. Uh, So my question is about the role of the sacrament. Mm -hmm. And the way I see it, like, um, they're, they're like representations and obviously good um, ways to commune with God. So, like, is there a passage or something to kind of help support or understand why, like, say communion is what we practice versus, like, uh, the Passover or um, I've seen churches that have, like, a trifold communion, so foot washing, the bread and wine, and, like, fellowship. So... I guess where in the Bible kind of is our support for the way that we... So is it maybe why, why are there only specifically two sacraments, baptism and, and Lord's Supper? Right. And not, why, why isn't anything else called a sacrament, right. but these two things are like called? Why are, why are those the things that are the best way for us to um, commune with God and to be sanctified? Right. Um, I think this, the simple answer would be... <laughs> because that's all I know. The simple answer uh, would be um, that if you read the Scriptures, uh, foot washing is an example that Christ did for the disciples and a good thing for us, a good attitude for us, maybe even a practice for us to do. Uh, but it hasn't been, there, there's no, there, in the way that those things are communicated, there's no um, tension in which we have to wrestle with the Holy Spirit somehow setting them apart. Like, like for example, uh, with... Uh, um, 
uh, the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, you, you have to have to wrestle with, okay, how, why does you say this is my body and this is my flesh? Like, how do you, you know I mean? It's not just this is reminding of my body. But then you kind of have to wrestle with the, Jesus localized in heaven and he, his body. So how does that work? And we look at the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible and we see that, okay, this is an ordinary thing that's been set apart. Now, the, the water and the foot washing, um, it wasn't. It was communicated as a good example, but there wasn't. It wasn't communicated in a way that we have to. That we see the work of the Holy Spirit setting apart the water, is, is in, in the foot washing uh, to where it's more of a, a, a an attitude you should have when you live out your Christian life with with each other. Now the water in baptism would be uh, 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 sanctified and set apart because uh, Presbyterians will say that it connects with. Um, circumcision of the Old Testament. So now we don't circumcise anymore, but, but we, so circumcision is no, no, no longer the mark of who is God's people, but baptism is. That's the mark of who God's people are. Um, uh, because of that connection, we, we, uh, we, we make inference about how it is a sacrament set apart for holy use. But can you complete that answer any more than I can? I think, I think there's more to it. Sorry, I put it on the spot. Um, I think part of it is just that the biblical text where Jesus actually said, do this in remembrance of me, right? And, and he also said, go and baptize all nations. So there's explicit conjunctions and commands. And Paul reiterates that. There's one faith, one baptism. And then in um, 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the Lord's Supper um, as an ongoing institutional um, responsibility of the church. And unbelievers can partake in it. Um, Yeah. And I think the non the non-believers shouldn't partake in it part is, is probably a, a big a big part of that too. Whereas um, in the Lord's Supper it says don't you know don't don't partake of it if you're not a believer. This is sanctified for us. This is spiritual use for people who do have an internal spiritual faith. And baptism, you don't baptize, you know, anybody that wants to be baptized. You baptize people who are who who um well, Presbyterians would say are in, have received Christ or is a child of one or two parents who are believing parents, um, because it communicates the covenant of grace. But we can—that's a whole other uh, long topic for that. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think just the way the Bible communicates these two things is sacramental. It is set apart um, uh, for holy use more than other things. Like, um, yeah, that's what I would say. Please, yeah. I think it was helpful how you said they were, it was more like a sort of command almost to do them. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Or was it like, do this in remembrance of me um, or baptize the nations. So then um, something like Passover or one of the, or the festivals that were like commanded to be celebrated mm -hmm. before, then why then do we not also uh, so I think there, theologically and historically, I think biblically, uh, there is a transition between uh, the practices of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And um, uh, I forget the verse, but um, you should no longer observe the sun and the moon. What is that? Huh? Colossians 2. Uh, uh, and so the practices of the Old... For example, some of... Okay, so uh, let's sync this. So there are practices of the Old Testament... Um, that's been completed in Christ. For example, the Passover lamb. We don't sacrifice lamb animals anymore because Christ is our ultimate sacrificial lamb, and it points to Christ, right? So we don't do that anymore because Christ is, 
is the land. But then there are commands of the Old Testament uh, that do continue uh, forward. So, okay, three types of commands the Old Testament, the, the cultic laws, the temple laws of the Old Testament, which is like the sacrificial animal and washing your body before you enter in, and even high priest, the whole structure of having a high priest and all that, that stuff is done. Why? Because Christ is our high priest. He's our mediator. Christ is our sacrificial lamb, and he's the one who washes us over, right? So those things are meant to communicate Christ. So we're, we're done with that. Another thing is the um, uh, 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 Na- nation laws of Israel, because back then God's people was a geopolitical people group. So there are laws that, that are specifically for how that is to be ordered. But now God's people is not a, geo- a political group, but in Christ, you know, we're all Jews, right? We're all Israel. We're all God's people, no matter if you're American, Chinese, Indonesian. So therefore, the, the national laws are no longer there. But there are commands uh, that move forward, uh, such the Ten Commandments. Right, those commands continue, uh, and other moral, the moral laws, what it's called, it continues. So I guess you have to discern which, what, uh, uh, which law, which command is this, and when has it been done, completed by Christ? But which, which laws continue forward? Cultic laws, national laws, I forget the actual terms. Those, those have ceased because of the nature of salvation, but m- the moral law continues on forward. Do you want to add something? <laughs> but do you have to? <laughs> Put it close to your mouth. Um, I think there's also something about the sacraments that communicate the inclusion of the Gentiles in a way that the old covenant institutions right. don't. So what happened at Pentecost is that the Spirit suddenly creates access and is accessible to anyone that is outside of Israel, anyone that's outside of Jerusalem. And the movement of circumcision to baptism communicates that inclusion. No longer is it just males who have the covenant sign, but females can also partake in the covenant sign. No longer is it just um, priests who could do the meals and the lamb, but rather now everyone is invited to the table to feast with God. So the, the wine and the bread communicate the finality of Christ's work and the celebration of the presence of Christ with his people anywhere and every place. And the fact that it's no longer mediated by a priest and no longer a bloody sacrifice that is closed off from the people, now we're invited into the marriage supper every time we, every time we partake of the bread. Does that make sense? There, so, there's, there's a transference of inclusion, a picture of exclusivity to inclusion that kind yeah. of happened and, and symbolized by these and things. And Pentecost is really the dividing line between Old and New Covenant. That's, when, that's why the, the institution... The, the institution of the Lord's Supper and baptism communicates the greater inclusion and greater extension of the and the finality of Christ's work. Does that help? Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's move on because uh, we 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 do, uh, we want to try and finish on time. Uh, the internal work of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be five minutes. Okay. So. We have to be careful to not thinking of uh, being a member of the institution of the church and hearing the word of God and taking the bread and wine of communion as if it's a power-up mushroom in Super Mario, okay? You don't take the communion and like, do-do-do-do-do, or you don't, you don't like go to church and be a member of a church and then just automatically do-do-do, like grow, you know, and have fireballs. Like, that's not, that's not, it's not that there's a term for that, ex oper operado. I think, in Latin. That's our ex opere operato in Latin, okay? What that means is that from the work, worked. So from the work, work. Just, just take it, and then it'll work, 
like, like a magical thing that will just kind of happen. Uh, that's not at all what the Bible says. Um, internal faith, your believing in these things in the gospel, is also needed for these things to then progressively sanctify you. Where do we see that? Matthew 13, 24 to 30. Um, uh, So this is about membership of the church. Just becoming a member of a church doesn't like power you up uh, like in Super Mario. Why? Because there are people who are members of the church that do not have the internal faith and therefore are not benefiting from the membership. He put another parable before them saying... (coughs) Put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of God may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. Then the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the wheat first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Saying, in the church, there will always be wheat and, uh, 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 and weeds and wheat, right? There will always be ones, and you can't, there's not really separated in a way that it will be in the future, and let them both grow up. Preach the gospel. I mean, you know, you should, elders should still do their due diligence of vows, making sure people who enter are actually born-again Christians, right, our internal faith. But at the end of the day, it's impossible to keep it as clean as we probably want it to be. Um, so just joining a church doesn't, doesn't necessarily, you know, power you up in that way. You have to also have faith in your heart and why you're doing it and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, also, Bible says not everyone should partake in communion. 1 Corinthians 11, 26 to 29. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, meaning they don't have the internal faith while they do it, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So it's not just automatically... You, there has to be an internal work of faith that couples this external uh, 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 communication of uh, the covenant of grace. Even the Bible, okay, just reading it within itself doesn't just kind of make you whatever. There has to be an internal faith working as well. Second Corinthians two fourteen and seventeen. This is the last passage. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, okay, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's words. Side note, do not peddle God's word. But we are men of sincerity. As commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So preaching God's word, God's word being preached, to some, it is an aroma of death to death. For some, it is an aroma of life to life. No matter how well they preach the gospel, if the Holy Spirit has not internally worked faith in their hearts, they're going to hate it. They're going to think it's the stupidest message ever, and they might even not like you for it. But for some, it is an aroma of life to life. So it's the preaching in itself, there needs to be an internal, being a member of a church, the preaching, taking communion, there needs to be an internal um, a working of, the, of faith, and who does that, as we've learned? The Holy Spirit. 
He needs to work within you, faith within you, so that as you partake in the external communications of the covenant of grace and you participate in that, you will grow in such a way progressively sanctified. 1 Corinthians 3, 6-7, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Okay, so next part, we're going to talk about our responsibility, uh, uh, but right now, I just want to emphasize the holistic role of the Holy Spirit and not only setting apart these things in church and communion and, and the Word of God, but also internal faith in our hearts, and when this goes like this, we progressively sanctify. So lest we fall into pride and arrogance, thinking that where we are now is because of our own works and effort, um, we shouldn't. So we should start look, looking at each other in jealous comparison, but look unto Him in humble obedience and reverent thankfulness. Okay. Last part. We talked about the gift of the Spirit, uh, 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 external, internal, and how we progressively sanctify. So now let me just briefly talk about the fruit of the Spirit. This won't take but five minutes, okay, or something like that. Okay. So the fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like to walk by the Spirit? What is our responsibility in this whole thing, okay? To walk by the Spirit is not walking around trying to look for unordinary supernatural events and looking for the miraculous gifts and kind of looking for the wows out there. It's, it's not. Nor is it getting really emotional and hyped up at church. And the level of maintaining that emotional hype inside as if equates to walking with the Spirit. That's not what the Bible means when he says walking with the Spirit. Biblically speaking, walking in the Spirit means putting yourself into a spiritual greenhouse. Who knows what a greenhouse is? A greenhouse is uh, 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 when you want to grow a tree, you put it within a frame that is controlled, uh, has the right temperature, has the right type of soil, has the right type of watering and sunlight and oxygen. It, it, it's, it's controlled in such a way so that the tree can grow. So to walk by the Spirit is putting yourself in a spiritual greenhouse. What I mean by a spiritual greenhouse is surrounding yourself with things that the Spirit has specifically instituted and set apart for holy use. One, be a member at a local church that has, has elders in it, right? That's putting yourself in a spiritual greenhouse because the church is an institution that the Spirit has set apart. Elders is best, plural. Two, Expose yourself to proper preaching of God's Word. Where? In this institutional church that you're just become a member of. Three, partake in communion at Sunday morning worship in church. And when you take it, <laughs> feel the reverence of it, that this has been set apart for you. Partake in that. And as you, as you place yourself in this spiritual greenhouse, four, pray that the Holy Spirit will work faith in you and grow you into spiritual maturity. Be dependent upon Him as you responsibly do these things. And five, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Listen to the new desires and the new passions that He's given you. Trust and obey uh, the faith that He's imparted in you. Be a member of a local church. That's how, you, how do you walk in the Spirit? Be a member of a local church. Expose yourself to proper biblical preaching. Partake in communion on Sunday morning. Pray that the Holy Spirit will work faith in you that you'll grow into spiritual maturity and don't quench the conviction of the Holy Spirit that He's given into your heart. That's it. <laughs> that, that's what it means to walk in the Spirit. You don't have to wait around for something to overcome you and just fall down. No. 
So when he asks, okay, um, uh, when he progressively sanctify, uh, how, how do you listen to the uh, 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 internal working of the Holy Spirit as you progressively sanctify? Simple questions. Do I date this person when I know it's not according to God's Word? Listen to the new spiritual desires you have to obey His Word, according to His Word, not your emotions. Should I go to this website? Listen to the new spiritual desires that you have. Obey His Word. Should I take this one extra drink when I know that I've reached my limit? Listen to the new spiritual desires you have. Obey His Word. Should I share the gospel to this person? It's kind of scary. Listen to the new spiritual desires you have and obey in it. Do that as you place yourself in this spiritual greenhouse. That's how you grow. Okay. What does a person who is led by the Spirit or a mature spiritual person look like? I talked about this a little bit in my Q&A, but... Um, and I, won't, I can't get too much into it. But today, people think about a mature spiritual guy. They think about people who have the, gift of the, the gifts of the Spirit. Like, you know, if you can't speak in tongues, you can't prophesy, you're not that mature yet. And you often even force people to speak in tongues to get. So kind of people who, uh, who, who, who have received Christ but don't have these supernatural gifts, gifts, they're kind of the lowest level. People who have received Christ and have the ordinary gifts, they're kind of the second level. But people who receive Christ have the extraordinary gifts, and they kind of fall down everywhere and do all this kind of stuff. They're kind of the top-level tier Christians. Some would even say that if you can't speak in tongues, you're not a believer. You know how damning that is for a lot of people? That's terrible. You don't, the Christ, the blood of Christ shed for you is what you need to be a Christian. That's it. It's terrible how guilty people feel when they're not living up to these standards that they, they put that's not biblical. Because when the Bible says the sign of progressive sanctification, it's, it's not referring to the gifts of the Spirit, it is referring to the fruit of of the Spirit, okay? You'll recognize them by their fruit, right? John 15, I'm the true vine, Father's finder. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. The, the, how you know you're saved is whether or not you have the fruits of the Spirit. How do you know you're progressively sanctifying is the fruit, not the gift of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit and define it. What is it? Um, is it speaking in tongues? Is it, let's go to Galatians 5, 16, 17, 22, and 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. So, so, so um, uh, it has to do with the desires, okay? For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do, keeping you from who you are. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There it is. You want to know whether or not you're a spiritually mature person? Do you have spiritual, that means a joy that is in, 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 in based upon the, the covenant of grace that Christ has accomplished to you? Does that bring you love? Does that bring you joy? Uh, emotional terms here, right? Peace. Uh, does it make you patient? A character term here. Kindness, how you relate with one another. Goodness, integrity, right? Faithfulness in the way you obey God when it's hard. Gentleness in the way you re respond to each other when somebody hurts you. Self-control in the way you control your desires when you know things are not right. Character. These things are, are, are against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's how you know. So a few things about fruit. One, it's born out of an internal reality. You're not doing these things to then become a Christian, but you know that you have faith in you, and therefore it bears uh, increasing fruit uh, uh, here. 
Okay, it's born out of internal reality. It's a result of something, which is the gospel, which is which is the spirit of Christ that regenerated your heart. It's singular. It doesn't say fruits of the spirit. It says fruit of the spirit, because this is an organic growth of all of them. You think about it. Um, you, have you ever noticed somebody who's kind of joyful, but not thankful at all? Joyful because they just they have a lot of good stuff. They have, you know, 10 nice cars. But they're not particularly a thankful person. They have a deserving mentality. That's not, that's not a food spirit. Uh, uh, do you know people who are gentle because they have a lack of self-control? You know, some of the most forgiving people are people who lack self-control because they know that, oh, I can't do it. I'm, I'm just as sinful. I have no self-control, so I'm going to be gentle with you in your sin but not because of a gentleness that's born out of Christ, but of a gentleness that's caused out of self-deprivation. Well, I'm just a sinner, so I'm just going to be gentle with every other sinner. That's not, what it, that's not true fruit. Have you ever seen somebody um, who's patient externally? They're, or have you been patient? You're in a restaurant, you're waiting for your food, and externally, you're like this. But internally, you're like, my food, bring it, right? So, Patience without peace isn't true, the fruit we're talking about. And self-control, have you, have you ever seen people who's really self-controlled, really rigid, obeys, you know, gets up in the morning at 5 a.m. and reads the Bible for three hours and then goes to church, and then it's like just so rigid, but there's no joy in their doing of it. It's just like rigidity, legalism, just harsh, but without joy. So that, it's, a, it's a singular fruit. There's an organic growth of who you are um, together, uh, of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, there's, uh, there's a Christ-centered gospel rejoicing, God-thankful uh, that makes you humble, um, a growth uh, of who you are. Um, and we are called to be responsible to keep in step with the Spirit, referring to, okay, what do you do? Join a, join a church, take, the, take communion, listen to the Word of God, and Pray that the Lord will internally uh, grow you, and lastly, don't quench your spirit. Listen to the internal desires that He gives you. Okay, summary. The Holy Spirit sets apart ordinary means to move His people forward in their progressive sanctification. At the same time, applies faith in our hearts to make these means effective in sanctifying us. Therefore, we are responsible to expose ourselves to these means Okay? yet at the same time dependent upon Him to make these means effectual in our growth. And our progress can be seen by how we organically grow into who we really already are in Christ. All right. Let's start for questions. Um, we want to kind of uh, do a little discussion thing for you guys, and I think we, we can still do that. Let, let, let's do that. Okay, here's what we'll do. Uh, for the next 15 minutes, uh, just in your tables, I think that'll be simplest. Um, talk about uh, these three things, okay? Hold on. Okay, one, uh, if you can have a scribe in your table so that you know what to talk about. One, what did you expect to learn about the Holy Spirit coming into the conference? What did you expect to learn about the Holy Spirit coming into the conference? Two, what was one new thing about the Holy Spirit that you learned? What was one new thing about the Holy Spirit that you learned? And three, what was something that you want to explore more?
about the Holy Spirit? What was something you want to explore more? What did you expect to learn coming in about the Holy Spirit? What was one thing, new thing that you learned about the Holy Spirit? And what was something uh, that you want to explore more in, about the Holy Spirit? Okay, let's take about 15 minutes, talk amongst yourself, and we're going to come back and do Q&A that is more for the whole retreat, not just for this session, okay? So, so, so talk amongst yourself uh, for about 10, 15 minutes, and we'll probably end at 12.15 uh, if that's okay. Go 15 minutes over.